So I uh, just recently became aware of a new website, new to me, rentafriend.com. There are those of you who I'm sure are thinking I made this up, but I promise you I'm not. Rentafriend.com is a website where you enter your zip code or the zip code of a city you are visiting, and up pops a list of people who offer to get together for any sort of platonic, friendly activity. Going out for dinner, going for a hike, watching a movie, playing golf, you name it, they'll go with you. Now, there is a cost. You're expected to pay for whatever the outing costs, as well as 10 to $150 an hour for your friend. Now, those of you who have friends, you can determine where they would fall on that 10 to $150 an hour scale. But, but if you're anything like me, you go through a few stages of feeling when you hear about rentafriend.com, maybe somewhat similar to the stages of grief. Uh, you, start, you start by feeling just basically kind of appalled. I mean, is this really where we're at? You know, rent, rentafriend.com. But, but then you begin to think, well, what, what's the big deal exactly? Right? I mean, there are people out there who need friends, you know, and there are other people who could use some spare cash, and so shouldn't they meet up and just sort of each take care of what the other one needs? And, you know, I have kind of a small government streak to me, like my grandfather Lindley, and, and I can get behind that. Then the third stage hits me kind of like a ton of bricks, and, and it's in the third stage where I realize and begin to ask the question, what, what does it mean that we've gotten here? What does it mean that we are now a culture that is successfully, or trying at least, attempting to commodify friendship? A culture that has turned friendship and camaraderie into something to sell. As far as whether or not rentafriend.com should be legal or allowed, I don't know. Uh, because the picture is so much bigger than that. I mean, how broken are we when we live in a culture where you can buy or rent a friend. I mean, can we sink any lower than this? So those, that's kind of how I feel. And the, the website was squarely in my mind when I was reading the text for this week. Now, I have a confession to make to start. During Wes's uh, sermon series that he's been doing, you know, he's been preaching on some fairly obscure sorts of passages. And he had one planned on Gehazi. And, uh, and then it turns out he had to be gone for the weekend. So he asked if I would preach the sermon from this text that he had selected on Gehazi. And I said, oh, okay, no, no problem. Gehazi, I can do that. And then as soon as I got back to my office, I hit the concordance and got under G and looked for Gehazi. I was like, what's the story? And then I realized, oh, it's the story of Naaman. I know this story. Uh, so I remember it as the story of Naaman. Naaman, of course, and you know the, the broad contours of the story. He's a foreign army commander from Aram, Aram, whichever, who comes down with this horrible skin affliction. And his wife's servant girl was from Israel, she was actually a prisoner of war from Israel. And she advises Naaman to go to Israel because there's a, a prophet there who can help him. And Naaman, of course, being a powerful man, presumes that his healing can only come at a great price. And so he goes to Israel and he takes with him 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. And he brings a, a letter from his king to the king of Israel, asking that Naaman be cured. And Naaman stops in to see the king, and, and the king says, Whoa, I can't help you. I don't know who told you I could help you. But he was very nervous because he thought to himself, I don't want to make an enemy in Naaman, but I also have no idea how to heal him. And Elisha steps in and says, Send him to me. I, I know how he will be healed. I'm confident in the power of God. 
to heal this man. And, and Elisha tells Naaman how to do it. And Naaman is initially disgusted, but he chooses to bathe in the Jordan, as Elisha says, and he's healed. And he tries to pay Elisha the 750 pounds of silver and 150 pounds of gold and 10 changes of clothes that he's brought. But Elisha refuses, and Naaman turns to go home. Now, watching this, Gehazi is displeased. Gehazi feels as if Naaman has gotten off too easy, as one translation puts it. He was too easy on Naaman by not accepting any payment. And so he decides to correct this himself by chasing Naaman down and tells, and tells him a lie. He says, two young prophets have just showed up to stay with Elisha, and they could use 75 pounds of silver and a change of clothes each. And Naaman gladly pays that. He pays 150 pounds of silver, in fact, and Gehazi and, and the changes of clothes. And, and Gehazi takes these things, gives them to his servants, and goes home. And as soon as he gets home, he has the servants give him the goods, and he stashes them under the bed. I can just picture my son Jack doing something similar to this that he doesn't want me knowing about. Just stashes these things under the bed, and then Elisha knocks on the door. I can do, actually, yeah, knock, knock. He knocks on the door, and uh, Gehazi opens the door, and Elisha says, Where have you been? And Gehazi says, nowhere, which, again, is just very reminiscent of my four-year-old son, Jack. I mean, this is the kind of thing he would say, nowhere, you know, I haven't been doing anything. And uh, Elisha, of course, is supernaturally tipped off to what's going on. And uh, he says, don't you know that my spirit was with you? When you were doing that, which is an incredibly creepy thing to say. I mean, (laughs) when Jack does this to me and says nowhere, I'll say, don't you know my spirit was with you watching you, Jack, you know? Don't you know my spirit was with you? And I saw the whole thing. And then he says to Gehazi, is this the time? Is this the time to take money? Is this the time to accept clothes, olive groves, vineyards, flocks, herds, men servants, maid servants? And of course, the implied answer is no, this is not the time. And then Elisha punishes Gehazi by saying, the leprosy that Naaman had now is going to be yours and your family forever. First impressions. Gehazi gets kind of a bad rap. I have some sympathy for Gehazi. He's right in a sense. Gehazi is right when he says Naaman gets off too easy. I mean, there's the obvious sense in which he didn't have to pay anything, but but there are other ways in which I feel like Naaman got off too easy as well. I mean, after Elisha heals him, Naaman says, well, at the very least, you know, take this because I can't use it when I go home. From now on, I will not be offering any worship, any sacrifices, anything to any other god except the God of Israel. Oh, except this one thing, he says, there will be some one time when I have to go into the temple of Rimon, into a temple of another God, and my master will be there, and he will be expecting me to bow down. And so I'm going to need to bow down then when I go into the temple of Rimon. And Elisha, you know, Gehazi's listening to this, and he's thinking, Elisha is just, boy, Naaman put this ball on a tee and Elisha's going to hit it out of the park. He's going to tell him there's only one true God. But all Elisha says is, go in peace. Go in peace. What? What's that about? I mean, how come Naaman doesn't have to leave everything to follow God like Elisha has? Like Gehazi has? 
I mean, here is a commander of a foreign army that had the audacity to take prisoner a girl and then follow her advice about where to get healed. He comes in, he gets healed, he's healed for free, and then he has the audacity to leave on his own terms. That's embarrassing. I understand why Gehazi was upset. Gehazi's embarrassed. And my first impression is that he's right to be upset. And, and frankly, my first impression is that whatever trickery and deceit he uses to rectify the situation is far less important than the idolatry that Naaman was going to continue to practice. Not to mention the fact that Naaman had been making war on God's people for lo these many years. So why does Gehazi wrong? Like, what's wrong with what he's doing? Why does Elisha treat it so seriously? By extension, why does God treat it so seriously. I mean, what's the big deal about fleecing a foreign army commander out of a couple talents of silver and a few changes of clothes? Just for fun in the study, I imagined this week, I just sat around and I imagined the story, but replacing Gehazi's name with Jacob. And I could just picture the Bible telling this story about Jacob, but telling it in such a way that Jacob was the good guy, where Jacob got commended for his cunning and that evil foreign army commander got exactly what he deserved for thinking he could treat the God of Israel with such contempt. The Arameans were no friends of Israel, folks. They hated Israel's God and, and they were at war so much that the text back in 1 Kings 25 makes very clear it says there was a peace of three years between Aram and Israel. Think of it. They were at war so much that a peace of three years was noteworthy. So why is Gehazi wrong? This guy was evil. First thing seems to me, Gehazi loves stuff. Now, again, that, that sounds harsh toward Gehazi. I mean, I, I live a pretty nice life, and Gehazi did not have a, a life of luxury at all. I mean, he was the servant of a man who generally didn't take money for the things he did. He seemed to be a fairly good-hearted person, kind of bumbling at times, but, but he did what he was told. He didn't always do it well, but, you know, he did what he was told. He, and besides, you don't decide to serve an impoverished prophet because you're in it for the money. But when push comes to shove... When Gehazi has this uneasy feeling about what's just happened with Naaman, when he begins to feel like Elisha deserves more and he deserves more, he can only conceive of that more he deserves in terms of stuff. There is something profoundly disturbing about Elisha's interactions with Naaman, I think. I think it's upsetting, as I've said, it's upsetting to see Naaman leave cleansed without it costing him anything, and to my mind, insufficiently changed. To me, Gehazi was right to have kind of feelings about what's going on here. He has uneasy feelings, and that's okay. But do you see what he does? He says, do you know what would solve these uneasy feelings that I'm having? Ah, 150 pounds of silver and four changes of clothes. That'll solve my uneasy feelings. Do you see, he, he takes a shortcut. He said, I would feel much better about this whole interaction if I had more stuff. Now it seems right. Now it sounds silly to say it that way. Because when we tell the whole story, we realize that the things that Gehazi is uneasy about have nothing to do with stuff. I mean, that's a spiritual reality. And the only real solution for that would be going to Elisha and starting an honest conversation where Gehazi says, when you let Naaman off, what were you thinking? Why didn't you take money from him? And what's this business about the temple of Rimmon? What were you doing? Why did you let him off? But, but instead of doing that, what he does is he ends up treating God's grace as a commodity to be bought and sold. 
as a shortcut for the uneasy feelings that he's having. And, and that seems to me to be Elisha's point when he says back, is this the time? Is this the time for money? Is this the time for vineyards, flocks, herds, etc.? All of that implies, of course, there is a time, right? There is a time when that's okay, but it's not right now. If I heal this man who has no acquaintance with the God of Israel and I take his money for it, he will think that God's favor is something to be bought and sold, something he can earn with his great riches, something that his great status makes him deserving of. And that's no way for Naaman to feel about God. That's no way for Naaman to be introduced to the God of Israel. That's a lie about God that I would perpetuate if I accepted his money. He needs to know that God, he owes God something he can never repay and that God's services are not to be commodified. And so ironically, of course, Gehazi's response shows us that it's not only Naaman that needs to learn this, but it's Gehazi too. Now, I think to to fully appreciate what this means for us, we need to think about things in our lives that are not designed to be bought and sold that we commodify. Think, for example, of the reality of professional sports. When someone says, I enjoy sports, now what we think is they enjoy purchasing their way into the sports entertainment complex. Right? When I say, I enjoy sports, what you think is he enjoys mercenaries from his city playing against mercenaries from another city and watching that paying money to watch that, maybe buying a cable TV package where I can watch more of that, maybe buying season tickets so I can go to watch that, maybe buying jerseys so I can dress up like my favorite mercenary athletes. When I say I enjoy sports, what you think is he enjoys watching other people do sports for him, right? That, of course, and and I shouldn't come down too hard on professional sports. I do enjoy professional sports. I was thinking back uh, in 2001 when the Sixers made the NBA Finals. I was in Philadelphia. And the Sixers were literally the only thing that bound together the affluent white suburbs and the poor black neighborhoods in the city. So I don't want to come... Professional sports can do some good things. But what I'm saying is when we take sports and start to buy and sell them, they stop being sports. That makes sense? Uh, sport... Properly defined is something you and I could go do this afternoon when we could run around on the quad and throw a ball and recreate and then go back to real life. As it is, when we make sports into something to buy and sell, it almost alienates us from sports. I watch professional basketball, and of course my name's Michael Jordan, so I grew up watching professional basketball. And I used to love to play basketball, but at some point, shame crept in when I would watch, and I would say, I'm not a basketball player, Right? I'm not like him. I can't do those things. When I play basketball, it scarcely resembles what they do on TV. I must not be a basketball player, right? When in reality, of course I'm a basketball player. You could be a basketball player. Any of us could. All I'm saying is this. When we take something that's not meant to be bought and sold and start to buy and sell it, it changes. And it often changes our attitudes toward ourselves as well. Professional sports left me feeling differently about my own attitude to my own body. The fact that we turned it into a commodity did that. And it's that way with lots and lots of things in our lives. Think about the way our culture commodifies food. The way they say, if you're feeling down, this will help you to feel better. That's a lie, (laughs) right? That's a lie. It doesn't make you feel better. It usually makes you feel worse after you've eaten it, right? But the fact is, that's what we say. And... The result, of course, is that we don't treat food as a gift from God for us to enjoy appropriately. 
We treat it as an emotional crutch to be enjoyed as a reward at times or to be avoided altogether. The fact that we commodify food the way we do hurts our relationship with food and with our own body. The same could be said for lots of things. I mean, when we commodify sex, it turns into prostitution or pornography and robs men and women of the joy that sex is supposed to bring, the beautiful eros which God intends. It turns it into something that's turned in on ourselves. When we commodify music, it turns into musical forms that have the sole intention of kind of titillating us lyrically or titillating us musically. When we commodify friendship, it turns into rentafriend.com. Do you see what I'm saying? When we take any of these things and start to buy and sell them, it changes them and it breaks people in the process. And that's what Elisha is saying here. When you take the prophetic grace of God and turn it into something to buy and sell, you change what it is. It's not grace anymore. You make it less than it is. And and there's a time, Elisha says, for Christian prophets, Christian leaders to receive gifts from people who are grateful that God has done something for them through this person. But when it becomes something where Gehazi puts his nickel in or when Naaman puts his nickel in and expects grace out, that's a problem. And Gehazi's actions have driven him, driven Naaman further away from understanding God instead of closer to. That's the first thing. Commodifying the grace of God. But I think the other reason why Gehazi's wrong is related to that. He finds it impossible, as I've said, to conceive of what he's deserved beyond stuff. And to me, this is fundamentally a problem of gratitude. What I mean is, when Gehazi wants stuff so much, he can't see all the other good things that God has done. Think about for a minute what it would have been like to be Gehazi and to enjoy the life that Gehazi lived. Think of the amazing things Gehazi got to see. Think of all the weird things in the stories that are associated with Elisha that Gehazi gets to see up close. He gets to see the sick healed. He gets to see an axe head float. He gets to see that almost inexplicable scene that youth groups always love where there's teenagers in the woods making fun of Elisha because he's bald. And Elisha calls down bears from the woods to maul 42 youths to death. I have no idea what that text is about, but Gehazi gets to see it, right? He gets front row seats to all the amazing and confusing things that God has done. He gets to see them with and touch them and experience them. But when push comes to shove, he's like, it's nothing without that 75 pounds of silver and those two sets of clothes. If I had that, then I would be happy. How ridiculous. But um, truth be told, I mean, I think there's some uncomfortable parallels to our own lives here. I, I'm, living in Houghton, I think, is a tremendous privilege. There are very few places in the world like this. We've got great weather. I think the weather's beautiful here. I'd take three seasons out of four here. Uh, we get to be part of a big church in a small town. Think of how unusual that is. We get to have faculty and staff and students come from all over the country to be part of what's going on at Houghton College. We get people from all over the world now that come to be part of Houghton Academy. What an awesome privilege to attend a church with that kind of diversity, with that kind of wisdom and knowledge and energy and just interesting people. I mean, what an amazing gift last year to be part of a church where in 2011, 17 babies were born. How amazing is that? And we got to be here and, and see it. I mean, that, that's such a sign of God's enduring faithfulness to us, his renewal of his covenant with us. I mean, there are amazing signs of God's goodness all over, and they're all free. I mean, not, not the babies. The ba- <laughs> right? 
the babies are free for you to enjoy in the nursery, but, uh, but they cost some of us something. But you see what I'm saying. I mean, God does these amazing things freely for us, and they're like wildflowers. He says, if you go pick them, I'll make more. And yet we get so worn down with everything Houghton is not. Students begin to complain that Houghton is too remote, too out of touch with the real world, too repressive, legalistic, spiritually inbred. Yes, I read the star too, so I know all that, right? Uh, Faculty and staff and administration at the schools begin to squabble with each other. We begin to feel at those times the tight little squeeze of living in town together. And all of this, of course, spills over into church life. and, And we begin to think of the church as not Wesleyan enough or too Wesleyan, not contemporary enough, too contemporary too liberal, too conservative, and and perhaps the most like Gehazi, we begin to feel the pinch of finances that touches everybody these days. Certainly the institutions around Allegheny County, it it seems like there's always just not quite enough money to get that that one more thing I need. Not not that I want necessarily, it's not that that I need it, you know, and the fact that I want things to be just a little bit different, a little bit better. I don't need 750 pounds of silver, I just need 75 or 150, I don't need the gold at all. Just, and just a couple sets of clothes will suffice. I don't need all ten. I need just a little more. How do we address this reality? I mean, no one, no one wants to go around feeling like they deserve more all the time. Actually, maybe we do. Right? I mean, there's a way that we sometimes almost enjoy the feeling of not getting everything we deserve. I mean, sometimes we sneak in there to get more like Gehazi, but, but sometimes we just like to kind of nurse this lingering sense of martyrdom, right? Concocting a fantasy that the people around us and the place around us is just somehow not worthy of us, that we deserve more. I mean, sometimes it's that sense that it is its own reward. I mean, nothing is so juicy or delicious as to be able to be a martyr and still go on with life, you know? Some of you are paying attention, yeah. Nothing is so juicy or delicious as that martyrdom when we indulge that sort of sense of just how much we've sacrificed to be here. And we do this, of course, because it it does, it's a shortcut to all that stuff I prayed about down here. It helps us to feel secure. It helps us to feel confident. It helps us to feel superior to those around us. Now, social propriety and a dash of good old Wesleyan guilt keep us from actually going after the things we feel like we deserve. But we like the sense that we haven't gotten it. That we're underappreciated, misunderstood. So if you ask me with what to do with that sense that we deserve more, the first thing I'd say is to remind you that if you feel that way a lot, that's a problem. I mean, that's a, a reality that we all face. All of us feel unappreciated and misunderstood at times. That's part of the tragedy of human existence after the fall. Even in our own marriages, sometimes I think, I don't understand Jill at all. And I think she doesn't understand me at all, right? And we've been married for 13 years, living life together, raising kids together. And still, we remain mysteries to each other in some ways. And there's a way in which that does make us feel unappreciated, misunderstood, and that's part of life. But there's also a way to coddle those feelings. There's also a way to, to enjoy the sense of constantly feeling out of place, constantly feeling unappreciated, constantly feeling disappointed by the people around us. If that's you, you might start by saying, deep down, do I want to feel this way? Do I enjoy that shortcut of feeling superior to my neighbors? 
Am I, am I doing something in my own life to, to nurture the lie that everybody around me doesn't deserve me? If you find yourself doing this, it can be a very virtuous feeling because part of it, of course, is that you're convincing yourself that you're a virtuous person, that you're martyring yourself, but, but it's not virtuous at all. It's not true. It's a lie about the people who are around you. If you find yourself doing this always, that's a problem. The other thing I'd say is to not let your relationship with Jesus become something that you buy and sell. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, what on earth is he talking about? I mean, I don't even know where I would start buying and selling my relationship with Jesus. But I'll speak to that. But let me warn you, I'm going to sound like a cranky man. Okay? So I'm going to say something that will sound cranky and controversial. But one of the most damaging things, I think, that happened to the gospel in the last couple hundred years was the way that evangelical churches have started treating the gospel as a set of ideas to be believed and doing whatever we can to market and advertise those ideas so that you will believe it. If you will, we try to sell the gospel. Even Billy Graham said that. He said, I used to sell fuller brushes and now I sell Jesus. You know? Now, all this is done with the best intentions, but I think there's some unintended consequences to thinking that way. And one consequence is when you advertise like that, when you tell people relentlessly the gospel is like a product in that I'm advertising it to you, they will start to think the gospel is a product. They will start to think of the gospel and your church, in fact, what we produce here on a Sunday morning as a product. In fact, the end result is that American Christianity has, has tended to treat the church as optional, I think, for just this reason. When we think of our spiritual lives, each of us is responsible and has this capability for, for cobbling together a spiritual life from all these different ways. I can, I can find a preacher I like on iTunes. I can find music I like actually on iTunes as well. Uh, I can find a Christian radio station that I like. I can find an author that I like. And all of this I'll cobble together a spirituality that really fits me. When we get there, of course, what we've done is made it about me. We have tremendous potential to meet Jesus in ways beyond the church here, but there's also potential for destruction in the way we handle these things. I'll tell you a story, and, and I should shut up soon, but I'll tell you a story. I was in Colorado. I was with a youth group from my church. Our national youth gathering was in Estes Park, Colorado, at the gateway to Rocky Mountain National Park, a beautiful place to be. And the kids were thoroughly enjoying being loosed from the prison that is suburban Philadelphia. They were just having a great time. And they were with other Christians from around the country. And it was just every time they were together, it was happy, it was clappy. They were dancing, they were jumping. There was every time worship was together, there was this amazing, amazing music. And there were kids dancing to the music, and it smelled like 17-year-old sweat. It made me long for incense, you know, just to cover up the smell of 17-year-old sweat. And there was a boy from my church. I say he was from my church, but he never really went. He just came on this trip. And he tapped me on the shoulder. He said, if this is what our church was like, I would come more. And my first instinct was to feel guilty as it often was in those days, actually. But that's another sermon. But, uh, my first instinct was to feel guilty and to say, oh, oh, we can do that. We can make our church cooler. You know, we could, we could, we could tweak the music. We could do then I realized, as I was sort of planning this out in my head, that we could never do church cool enough for him. 
And actually, if we succeeded, it wouldn't be cool enough for someone else. And I realized that the real solution to the problem was not to bend over backwards to make church as cool as possible for this guy, but to somehow help him see that the gospel was not about surrounding yourself with cool people and cool accoutrements. To be truthful, though, it wasn't his fault. I mean, sometimes I think back on him and I think, boy, he was kind of ungrateful. But then I think he was just buying what had been sold to him. He was just eating what other people had fed him. His whole life, people and churches especially had been telling him, we have an obligation to be cool and, and we're cool enough for you, man. And if, if we're cool enough, maybe we'll be lucky enough that you'll become a Christian and hang out with us. And that's not the way we should talk about churches. That's the way we talk about jeans or grocery stores or restaurants, but it's not the way we should talk about the gospel. I mean, the gospel is, is not just a message we market. It's a life to be lived together. And when we forget that, this is the fallout, a generation of people who feel like they deserve more, who feel alienated from the church that has the potential to give them life, but they can't see it because they feel like they deserve more. And we need to remind ourselves every day that the community we belong to is not just something we should be evaluating to determine whether or not they're worthy of our presence, but the community we belong to in its strengths and its weaknesses and its weirdnesses, and we've got them, right? Is All of that is a way that we discover God together. And I understand myself better because I experience him with you here. Last thing I need to say, and you're tired of hearing me say it, and if you're not tired of hearing me say it yet, you will be by the last time I preach to you, I promise. We need to practice gratitude. There's no way to say that without sounding like an angry old school marm. You be thankful. That's not what I mean to do. Gehazi is broken emotionally. He's uneasy emotionally because he can't be thankful. Do you see? He's so sure that he's being robbed of something because he doesn't know all that he has. Because he hasn't taken time to see all that he has. And if we want to avoid that uneasy feeling that Gehazi has, that I deserve more, we need to rehearse our thanks for the things we have. Look at the Psalms. Read them sometime and you will see... uh, Literature that just says, God, we remember how you formed the earth from nothing. We remember how you called a people to be your own. We remember how we were enslaved. You brought us out. We remember you gave us a land. We remember, we remember, we remember, we remember. And to that, we can add our own salvation history. We can remember that God, when we were broken, we were sinners, sent his son. And we have our own little salvation stories to rehearse. The stories of when we were broken and God met us. And healed us. We need to rehearse those stories. Not so your inner school marm will be quiet, but because then we're happier. (laughs) We're happier when we remember the good things that God has done for us. I should be quiet now. Because I'm 10 minutes past my time and nothing works worse than a preacher telling you you should be thankful 10 minutes past his time. But let me remind you of this. Thankfulness saves us from ourselves. It saves us from becoming like Gehazi. It saves us from that nagging feeling that we always have that we could be doing better. And it reminds us that as often as we receive grace and mercy from God, he's willing and ready to give more. Let's pray.
God, you're so good. You sprinkle grace upon grace in our lives. And we stand remembering our own salvation story, the time when you met us when we were broken. And we stand remembering that we are part of a great people and a great salvation history that you've written across time and across the nations. For this, O God, we give you thanks. Help us to treat this treasure with appropriate reverence. Help us to to bring it out and to rehearse these good deeds you've done for us again and again. Help us to pass them on to our children. And God, never, ever let us exchange it for a mess of pottage. Never let us exchange that picture of the gospel as instead of something to be bought and sold. Help us never to treat the gospel that way. Help us to help it to be help us to be the people you've called us to be here and the inheritors of that great tradition. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.